to the back. And I know that you guys are going to have a great time in the Word. That's what excites me in knowing that when they go to the back, they're just not going back there to play games or things like that, but they're being fed the uncompromised truth of the word, just like we are in here. I wanted to read this post that a pastor friend of ours um, put on Facebook earlier today, and I thought it was just so good. Um, and this is uh, posted by Brandon Trott. He says, you can complain, which pollutes your attitude and changes nothing. You can vent to others, which might make you feel better, but won't give you answers or solve problems. Or you could talk to God about it so that he can change your heart, give you wisdom on how to act, and work miracles on your behalf. And ain't that the truth? Because so many times we want to just complain. We want to whine and murmur. We want to tell somebody else. You know, we want to just get it off our chest. But if we will take it to the Lord, he will work on our behalf. Amen. That's what he does. He's a miracle worker. I'm not going to make you get up, but you can just hand it back there. And I forgot to put Jason on the prayer list. Continue to pray for him. His back has gone out. And... Um, Normally it's me and my back, uh, but now he's getting a taste of that, which I'm not happy about it, <laughs> but uh, uh, if you've ever had back problems, you know it's no fun, so please pray um, for him. If you have your word tonight, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 13. Yes, we have made it <laughs> to chapter 13. We are there, and tonight we're going to hopefully cover verses 1 through 8. If you're there, say amen. If not, you'll get there. The scripture's on the screen, but I'm going to go ahead and read Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 8. And as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said unto him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, Seest thou these great buildings? There shall none be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be. But the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be earthquakes in diverse places. And there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. This passage of scripture that I just read is known as the Olivet Discourse. That's what it's called. Uh, most uh, theologians, pastors, um, that's what they will describe it as. Uh, and this, which was delivered by Jesus, is also recorded in Matthew um, chapters 24 and 25, and in Luke 21. You can go and read it there. Basically similar. Um, there are a few differences. Um, in details, but that's just how the Gospels work. But it's basically the same message. But in this uh, portion of Scripture, Jesus talks about the end of time. 
and uh, the events which surround the end of the world. And I'm always amazed at how the Lord works this out. Um, and he has, it seems like, at each pivotal moment uh, in our own current affairs, things that are going on. Um, when we started this teaching back in, I think it was March of last year, I believe, um, when big things are happening, it's like this speaks right to it. And what an on-time word I believe this is for us tonight. Now, I want to be honest with you. Um, I've kind of been uh, knowing that chapter 13 was coming. Why? Because I feel so inferior. I feel so... Um, unqualified in teaching end-time prophecy. And it makes me, I get upset. I'll, I'll, I get emotional in thinking about it um, because I've never claimed, I've never claimed to know it all. Um, and when it comes to end-time prophecy, it's such a um, touchy subject. Um, why? Because just as the Lord described here in these verses, the first thing, the first manner, was to be careful of deception. And why is there so much deception? Because people will rattle off, they'll spout off things that they really don't have knowledge of, that they haven't truly received from the Lord, but they're so quick to expound upon it, I guess in an attempt to make them seem smart or like they know what they're talking about. And my biggest fear, and I've shared this with you guys before, going all the way back to when Jason and I started doing church out of our house was leading people astray. Because I know of so many who started out right. They started out with pure hearts or what seemed to be pure hearts. And they ended, off so, ended up so off course and, and people are led astray. And I've always been so fearful of that. And on one hand, I think it's the Lord. But then on the other hand, I know the enemy can have his way. And so I've really just been praying that the Lord would give me peace in presenting this tonight. Um, because I want it to be him. I want it to be his word and his word alone. I'm not going to go. So if you came tonight for some deep theological explanation I'm sorry, that's, that's going to be left up to the Holy Spirit to do that for you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give to you what the Holy Spirit has given to me, and, and then he's going to reveal even more to you because that's how good he is, and, and that's how much he loves us. Um, so I want us to take our time tonight. When I first thought about this uh, passage of Scripture, of course, just trying to read for context, uh, I was thinking, well, maybe we can get through 13 or even 18, um, but I want us to, to take our time and to go through this and get as much as we can um, because we want to get a correct understanding of what the Lord is trying to teach us. So first, this passage never mentions the church or the rapture. It never mentions the church or the rapture. Why is that? It doesn't mention these things because this passage was not written to the church. It was written to the nation of Israel. Uh, and this is primarily a Jewish prophecy. Um, but still, there's many truths that we need to gain from this. They do still apply to us. Second, this prophecy covers um, a big time, a span of time, about 3,000 years uh, of human history is laid out here. 
That's, that's what we're looking at. 3,000 years of human history are in view. And these verses contain prophecies that have been partially fulfilled. And it also contains those that will be completely fulfilled in the future. And I believe it's very near. It's coming soon. So we're going to be looking backwards and forwards at the same time. Don't get dizzy. Don't fall over. That's what I do. And then thirdly, uh, with any prophetic passage of Scripture, we need to move cautiously right? Um, and with knowledge, because again, nobody has all the answers. Um, no Bible scholar has ever been able um, to truthfully uh, solve all the theological riddles, right, hidden within the, the word. And uh, so we have to approach these verses with a humble heart, knowing that none of us know it all. And I think a lot of times people can get caught up in saying, well, this is an allegory, trying to describe it allegorically. Um, but I think we need to take the word literally, first and foremost. Uh, if it can be interpreted literally, then that's how it needs to be interpreted. We don't need to go looking for some other great interpretation. The, the best interpreter of the word is the word itself. And that's what we always have to do or we could very quickly get in trouble. So with those thoughts in mind, um, I want to start with verses uh, 1 and 2. And the title for tonight, if you'd like to write down a title, is When Shall These Things Be? When shall these things be? Uh, in verse 1, we're talking about the temple and its design, and Jesus was leaving the temple. Remember, he's been there for three days. We're still in the week leading up to the crucifixion, and it's been a long three days uh, in this teaching. Uh, and I encourage you that if you haven't been here, go back online and, and go back to the beginning. We have friends in California that that's what they've done. They've gone all the way back to the beginning, and, and now they're caught up with us. They've listened to a message every day, and it just blows my mind, but, but they've done that um, because when you listen to it like that, maybe one day after the next, it really comes together and makes sense in your mind. But Jesus is leaving the temple, and I want us to kind of hone in on that tonight because he's leaving the temple for the last time until he comes back for trial. And that, that right there is a heartbreaking statement in itself. That he left the place where he should have been welcomed. He left the place that should have been home for him. And can I tell you tonight that the Lord has left a lot of places of worship. He's walked out. Why? Because he was never made to feel welcome. He was never invited in. His word was never proclaimed. It was never taught. Um, church became a social gathering. Hearts were no longer being changed lives were no longer being saved and if he's not in the house then I don't want to be there I don't want to be there I, I, I don't want the word Ichabod written over the door of this house my one desire is as I said in worship to be in his presence and if he's not here then then we don't need to be here. We have no reason to gather together. But he's here tonight. He's here to teach us. He's here to instruct us. He's here to grow us in his word. But he left the temple. And uh, it's been a tense time to Jesus and his disciples during these three days. Um, I'm sure the disciples were like, 
what's going on, um, just watching Jesus, the words that he was using and his behavior. They probably thought um, that Jesus was going to try, remember, still in their mind, they were thinking that Jesus was going to try to win the favor and come back and restore everything and be the king. They still yet could uh, not wrap their minds around the truth that he was going to the cross. He was going to Calvary, and even though it was just a few days away, they still, in their human minds, thought, oh, no, you're going to make everything great again. And I think that's why they were pointing out how beautiful the temple was. Just look at this. This is one of the greatest wonders of the world, right? Instead, Jesus did everything in his power to expose the religious phonies right? That's what he does. And that's been my prayer here lately is that the Lord God Almighty would expose the phonies, <laughs> that he would expose false ways, fake news, corruption, all of these things, not only in the world, but let it start in the church. Let it start in the church. Why? Because he will have his church. He's coming back for his bride. And that is the remnant that he's talking about. But exposure has to happen, and that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Again, now in their time, the temple uh, over and over, um, just the beauty of it, I guess just talking about it, they were trying to lighten the mood, so to speak. Um, he calls Jesus' attention to the construction of it and the stones, the size of them. And the temple in Jerusalem was considered to be among the most spectacular wonders of the ancient Roman Empire. Um, the original temple was constructed, as you know, by Solomon. Uh, it was a magnificent building that took seven years and many millions of dollars to build. Um, and the temple was completely destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians uh, in 600 B.C. But when the Jews returned to the homeland 70 years later, they constructed the se uh, second temple, and this temple served for the Jews for nearly, nearly 500 years. Uh, and I know this is a lot of information, but you need to know this. You need to know what it meant to them, what, how they held that so dearly, the temple, uh, in their hearts. But when King Herod assumed the throne of Israel, he wanted to gain favor with the Jews. So he offered to rebuild the temple, and they accepted it. In 18 B.C., and the work began. Um, by the time of Jesus, the work had been underway for some 46 years. John 2, 20. I, uh, I've got several verses tonight. I encourage you um, to take these down and go back and look at them later. It says, Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? Again, seeing how... They missed the mark. They didn't realize what he was talking about again, right? So it sat atop uh, Mount Moriah, and it literally dominated the skyline of the ancient city. And the Temple Mount covered some one-sixth of the land area of Jerusalem. Uh, it was 172 feet long and 20 stories high. You want to talk about a structure, a massive structure. This was it, and it could be seen from many miles away. Um, you'll notice that the disciple who spoke and called the Lord's attention uh, to the stones in the buildings, right? So let's talk about those two descriptions. The stones that made up Herod's temple, again, were enormous. Uh, some were 40 feet long and 8 feet high and 15 feet wide. 
one stone. I mean, I can't fathom how they moved those things and, and did all of that work. They were cut by hand from pure white limestone and fit together so tightly and perfectly that a sheet of paper couldn't be inserted in between the stones. The doors, the walls, and even the floors of the temple were overlaid with gold. There were jewels, carvings, um, many uh, just awe-inspiring sights within the temple. Um, it was said that when the sun came up over Jerusalem, you couldn't stand to look at the temple because of the light um, that was gleaming from the stones. It was like blinding. It was so bright. Um, and whether the temple was seen during the day or at night, its sight uh, was one that you wouldn't forget. And every, like every other Jew, this disciple was impressed by the temple. He was proud of it. It was a part of his nation and of his religion. So he calls the Lord's attention to the building and its wonders. And I'm thinking in my mind, as I'm reading this, Jesus is sitting here before them and they're just describing the beauty of the temple and all the while, Jesus is sitting before them. And they don't even really comprehend or can wrap their mind around who's before them. Jesus. The second in the Godhead is sitting before them, and yet their attention is drawn to a building. How many times does our attention get in the wrong places? Right? We get so caught up when we come into service with the, really, the order of service. Oh, yeah, we're going to come in, and they're going to sing a song and then they're going to do an announcement you know we get caught up in these things when we we come together we're two or more are gathered together right in his name he's in the midst of us and yet we're called up in everything but the fact that we're in his presence my heart my prayer has been that the lord get me focused on him. I want eyes only for him. Eyes only for him to see him in his beauty, in his majesty, not called up in the things that are around me, not worried about those things. But if my eyes are on him and him alone, everything else will fall into place. It doesn't matter. I want to have eyes only for him. In verse 2, uh, it talks about the destruction of the temple. And in those days, that was something that you didn't just talk about. You could be uh, imprisoned for treason if you talked about the destruction of the temple. So the response of Jesus was strange. And Jesus hears the explanation um, of the disciple and responds by telling him that the temple he loves so dearly will eventually be dismantled and destroyed. See, this was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D. when the Roman general Titus uh, and his army conquered the city. Titus ordered the men to preserve the temple, but the building was gutted by fire that was set by one of his soldiers. And as a result, the general ordered the temple and city to be totally destroyed, and the Romans dismantled every stone, just as Jesus had predicted. Right? Because... His word's true. Um, there's not a single stone left 
from that great temple. And I told you how big those stones were. But there's not one left, one to be found. And just a side note, there's going to be a new temple built <laughs> in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. The Jews are going to rebuild the temple and offer animal sacrifices once again. Then during the millennial reign of Christ, a final temple will be built in Jerusalem. And I am looking forward to that day. Amen. It's exciting. It's coming. And that's what we have to look forward to in verses 3 and 4. And I'm trying to get through this. After they've gone out of the temple in the city, Jesus led his men up to the Mount of Olives. And this mountain stood some 150 feet higher than the city below. It offered a commanding view right, of the temple and its grounds. They could see it all. And as Jesus sat there on the mountain, he was approached by four of his disciples, two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, John and James. They came to Jesus with a question, and they had to do this privately, as I said, um, because they didn't even want to ask it around the other disciples um, because they didn't want confusion. They, they wanted to know what he was talking about. So they came to Jesus for an explanation. And if we can learn anything from this, if you have a question, if you have a concern, if you have a desire, a need, go to Jesus. Just as I read that Facebook text, don't go to a person, a man or a woman. Go to Jesus, the one who can point you always in the right direction. So they approached him and they asked him, um, and they needed an explanation. And in verses 5 through 8, this is how the Lord gave his revelation. So these men come asking the same question that people still ask today about the end times. When it will happen and what will be the signs, right? We all want to know when and we want to know what. Um, and all you have to do to guarantee a good crowd in any service is to announce that you're going to preach on the end times. And people will come to hear that because they want a golden nugget. They want a little insight. They want to know something that nobody else knows, right? Don't come looking to me for that. Go to him. Ask him these questions. He'll reveal his word to you. But Jesus answers their last question in these verses. And later in the chapter, he'll answer the first question. But tonight, we want to talk about the response to the question about what the signs will be at the end of time. And the first thing to talk about, again, is deception. That's the first thing he warns about. Jesus warned his men that they needed to beware of deception. Even the disciples could be drawn away by things that they might see or hear. And that potential still exists today. To be drawn away by things you will see and things you will hear. That's why you have to be on guard at all times. That's why you need to be grounded in the word of God. We need to know what the Bible says and we need to know what we believe. 1 Peter 3 and 15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asked you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, right? Not acting like you know it all, you've got it all going on, but with meekness and fear in realizing we're held accountable for our words, for what we tell people, especially in regards to the word of God. I've had people ask me questions before that I really didn't know the answer to, and so I'll say, let's go to the word together and find this. Because I know it's there. 
right? I might not just automatically know it right off the top of my head. And for somebody to say that they know all of this, I think is wrong. Yes, we should be ready to give an answer, but that answer might be, let's go to the Word of God together and find the answer. And again, instead of being so quick just to rattle something off in order to puff your own self up to make people think, oh, well, they know the... They know everything about everything, right? We have to be careful with that. We need to have our own doctrine nailed down tight in our hearts so that when deception comes, we can be faithful to stand for the Lord. You see, the only defense against deception is a correct knowledge of the Word of God, which can only be brought about by the believer ever having Christ and the cross as our object of faith. That is the only way. That's where you start. That's your foundation is Calvary's cross. And then you build from there. If you start anywhere else, you're going to be off somewhere. Something's not going to line up. It's not going to fit correctly. So that always must be the object of our faith. Verse 6. Um, this right here is, again, being warnings of deception of people coming as a false messiah, um, bringing out the, the phrase, in my name. And that actually means upon the basis of my name, basing their claims on the use of my name. And I know you've heard most preachers will say that they've been called of the Lord, right, called by him to preach sadly that's not true with most it is true with some but it's not true with most well how can you say that there's a church on every corner that's how i can say that because <laughs> there's a church on every corner and unless the uncompromised truth of god's word is being preached then people are being led astray in one way or another and we say this a lot, if you were just one degree off in your uh, measurements, in your course, plotting your course, you would end up some how many miles? 500 and something miles off from your original destination. Just one degree off, right? It's serious to know the word of God for yourself. You have to taste and see that he is good for yourself. If you haven't tasted the original recipe, then somebody can add crazy stuff in there and you won't even know it, right? But if you've tasted for yourself of the goodness of God, if you have a personal relationship with the Lord and you are allowing the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you, you trust the Holy Spirit that when things aren't right, when you hear something that's not right, it might sound good, but if something inside of you, a red flag goes up, you know, no, I'm not going that way. I'm not going to receive that. I'm not going to allow that to come in to my mind because Jesus said that many false Christs would come along and draw many away into deception. And by the time that Jesus uh, comes on the scene, several Jews had already come along and claiming to be the Messiah. There was some living even uh, during the time of Christ, and many more have followed down through the years. Acts 5, 36 and 37 mentions two would-be Messiahs that lived before the time of Jesus. It says, For before these days rose up, 
Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves and was slain. And as, as, uh, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. After this man rose up, Judas of Galilee, in the days of the taxing, and drew away much people after him. He also perished, and all, even as many obeyed him, were dispersed. I mean, this was already taking place. Um, this was Judas the Zealot. So Simon the Zealot, that you re read about, was one of his followers. Right? I mean, that's kind of opened your eyes. And after the death and resurrection of Jesus, many more would-be messiahs came um, to prominence in Israel. One named Simon. Uh, he started a rebellion that lasted three years and cost thousands of lives in Israel. Um, his revolt led to a harsh um, Roman crackdown that left Jerusalem in ruins. Because he claimed to be Messiah. Moses of Crete claimed that he would part the Mediterranean Sea, uh, led his followers across dry land from the island of Crete to Israel, and many people jumped off cliffs at his command, and they drowned in the sea, right? Um, we could go on. We could come into our even modern-day um, people, uh, David Koresh, right? Jim Jones, we could go on and on, and it's heartbreaking, but you have to be on guard. These people would give truth with a little bit of error attached to it just to draw people in, and the people that were drawn in were those who were not rooted and grounded in the word for themselves. They didn't know enough on their own. And as the end of time approaches, there's going to be more and more and more who are going to step forward claiming to be the Savior of the world. And we've got to beware that you're not deceived by their words and evil deception. The appearance of such people is merely a sign that the end is approaching. It's close, folks. It is close. Verse 7 um, talks about wars. There will be wars. Our world has been marked by wars since the beginning of time. And according to, and I want you to get this, according to Will Durant, in the 3,424 years of recorded history, there have only been 268 years of peace. Wow. Right? That's not even, what is that, like a tenth? No? What is it? I don't, I'm not a math person. It's not much. Out of almost 3,500 years, only 268 years have been peaceful. This figure doesn't take into account the wars that were not recorded, right? Because there are little countries all over the world that have wars going on that we really don't even know about. Um, the history of our world is really one of war. That's what our, the history of our world. Tammy knows she teaches world history, right, uh, in middle school. And it's, all it is is war. That's all it's been. And Jesus said that wars and rumors of war would increase as the end time approached. And we're seeing that to prove to be true in our day. See, wars ravage our planet, even as man claims to be climbing higher and higher on the ladder of intelligence and compassion and peace. It's just war, bloodshed, 
lives being lost. And Jesus cautioned us against getting called up in the wars we see raging around us. When the United States invaded Iraq, and I remember this, uh, many people believed it was the end of time. This was going to be the end-all war, right? And all of those who believed that were wrong. And I remember a lot of people believed that. But Jesus said, these things must needs be, meaning it's got to happen. God is using the terrible tragedy of war to shape the world for the coming of his son. God uses the wrath of men for his own glory. Don't be dismayed by warfare. It's really God moving his pieces into place for the end time. Kenneth Wu said it like this, no matter what happens in the former kingdom, the people of God must carry on toward the God-ordained and predicted conclusion. He's coming back. He's coming back. We have a God-ordained end. A God-ordained conclusion to this world, to this life in which we live. And it's that he's coming back, church. He is coming back. And I want to take the moment to read. And if you have an expositor study Bible, I love this. Because the notes under verse 7 says, has to do with the mission at hand of evangelizing the world. Our Lord exhorts the disciples and all who would follow. This is it not to permit political and national upheavals to distract them from their work of evangelism. You can't tell me that's not exactly what is happening right now in the United States of America. There are so many believers so wrapped up, so called up in the political, everything that's going on in the political world, that they're forgetting their mission. They're forgetting what they were commissioned to do. To go ye therefore. To make disciples. And don't you know the enemy is having a heyday. Because he's got all these. Hey look over here. Right? He's got all these believers distracted. When what we should be doing is we should find ourselves on our face before the Lord saying, not my will be done, but thy will be done. I said it today, I think, or yesterday on the phone with my mom, and we were talking about, of course, politics and who's going to be announced as president. And, you know, there's pros and cons to both sides. And I said, I have just had to purpose in my heart, Lord, your will be done. Thy will be done. Because I know if one man is put into office, we're going to be so distracted with things over here and there's going to be dirty deals done under the table after midnight when the lights are out that we're not going to know what's going on until it's too late and all of our freedoms are just gone. But on the other hand, if the other party, which is the party that I support, is put in, then Life for a time is going to be hell on earth. There's going to be such a, an upheaval, a revolt in the land. And I don't know which is worse. So that's why I've just prayed, Lord, your will be done. I don't want to get unfocused. I don't want to get called up in, in this political scene. I want souls to be saved, Lord. I want souls to come in because time is too short and I'm tired of being distracted. 
I'm tired of, of, of seeing people uh, enraged with one another, right? Who were a couple weeks ago friends. But now bridges have been burned. Relationships have been destroyed. When really our hearts should be just loving one another as Christ has loved us. Reminding ourselves that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we should be extending that to those around us, not getting so angry just because of their political views. That's a soul. That is a soul at stake. And we need to be praying for the souls of mankind. That's what we've got to be focused on. Don't get distracted. Jesus always commands us to go. And not to stop. He never says stop. We're always to go. In verse 8, I want to very quickly, I'm going to try to just hit highlights. There's going to be constant upheaval in the world. Jesus tells, uh, tells us that as long as the world stands, there's going to be strife against nations. Nation will rise up against nation. We know um, that that is true, and we should not be overly concerned about this. Why? Because this is God's plan. These things needs be. It must happen. This is his plan, right? Preparing the world for the appearance of his son, Jesus. This is his plan. Um, the next thing is there's going to be an increase in earthquakes. And don't we know that? Just here in North Carolina, we've had a couple earthquakes that we have felt, right? Scientists tell us that there uh, are more than 13 million people have died in earthquakes over the past 4,000 years. Um, and so there's a lot of earthquakes that take place, and there's going to be even more. They're increasing in their frequency and in their intensity. That's just another sign of the time. That's the earth groaning. For the creator, right, to come back. There's going to be famine. There's going to be great famines in the land. Every 3.6 seconds, somebody dies from starvation. Can you believe that? Every 3.6 seconds, someone dies of starvation. Every year, 15 million children die of starvation and of hunger-related illnesses. Four million people starve to death every year. 1.3 billion people live on less than $1 of income a day. And we think we've got it bad, right? Another 3 billion survive on less than $3 today, a day. $3, right? That's what they survive on. Famines will also increase as the end is near, so don't be disturbed by these things. Jesus said it would be this way. There will be troubles of every kind. And in Matthew's account, and I encourage you to go back and, and read this account in Matthew's gospel, he talks about um, troubles, and with the troubles there will be pestilence. That's the word that he uses, right? There's going to be a, an upsurge in diseases and plagues at the end of time. We're in this, in that time, right? That's exactly what's taken place. In medieval Europe, they were affected by the Black Death. Whole villages were destroyed. And I know there's been lots of documentaries, especially since the coronavirus has come out, on these um, things, SARS, the Spanish flu, bird flu, Ebola, all of these things. But we must not allow these kinds of things to fill us with fear. Jesus said that we would see diseases, pestilence, and trouble of every kind would increase 
as the end approached. So to the believer, one, we should be excited. He's coming back. Two, it should motivate us. I want to take as many people as possible with me. What about you, right? I don't want to just say that I made it, but I want to have a whole line of people behind me that make it as well. That should be our heart's desire. But at the end of this, it kind of gives us a sobering promise. It says that these are the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of sorrows. That phrase right there actually means the beginning of birth pangs. Right? That's what it's talking about. Nearly every woman here who has given birth would tell us that when those first contractions hit, Sadie, it's really fresh on Sadie's mind, just two weeks ago, she was feeling those birth pains, right? It's just an indicator of a long, hard time ahead. And the first thing I thought when I found out that I, that I was pregnant with number five, I said, Lord, I'm going to have to go through labor. I don't mind the being pregnant part, but the labor, that pain, right, that, that comes along with it. But Jesus wants his people to know that he's coming. That was his promise while he was here. John 14, 1 through 3. And I'm going to try to read through these quickly. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also what a promise that we have tonight church that was the promise of the angels when he ascended to heaven Acts 1 9 through 11 tells us and when he had spoken these things while they beheld he was taken up and a cloud received him out of the sight and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up behold two men stood by them in white apparel which also said, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taking up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Right? Another promise. A promise of the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorites, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. What are you speaking to people? Right? There, there are wars, rumors of wars, rumors of diseases, viruses, all these things. We need to be comforting each other. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for his church, and I'm a part of it, and so are you. And that should excite us. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 50. 
two. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. If these don't excite you, church, I don't know what could, right? Because he's coming back. He does not want people to get called up in speculating of when that day might be. The Lord wants his people to live their lives in a way that he can work through us, right? He wants us um, to work like he's never coming. We just keep working. We just keep planting. We keep watering, right? And in, we know that in due season, he's going to bring the increase, right? He's going to come back and reap what is rightfully his. We're not to be called up in guessing about when the Lord might or might not appear. We're not to be looking for signs. Hear me. We're not to be looking for signs, but we're to be looking for the Savior. We don't need to know all the signs. We're just looking for the Savior, church. We know who he is, right? And when we see him, we shall be like him. Oh, I'm excited of that coming day. And if you're not a believer, maybe you're watching by Facebook or Internet. Maybe you've never given your heart to the Lord. And, and just the, the thought of the return of Christ brings fear in your heart. I want to let you know that it's, it's simple for that fear to be removed. All you have to do is confess your sins to acknowledge your need for a Savior. And he's going to come in and he's going to replace that fear with excitement. Because now you've been bought, you've been purchased with a high price, with the blood of Jesus. And if he bought you with such a high price, he's going to come back and get you. You don't put something on layaway and pay a bunch of money for it and just leave it there, right? You come back and get it, and he's going to come back for his church. If you will, stand to your feet. Tonight, Vanessa is going to play a song. and. I believe the title of it is I Will Rise because there's going to come a time shortly, it's coming soon, that he's going to call each and every one of our names. And what are we going to do? We're going to rise. We're going to stand up. We're going to go to our Father. If you have a need tonight, if, if you just need for us to agree with you in prayer, these altars are open as the music plays. Oh 
Father, we thank you, Lord, that that day is coming soon and very soon when you're going to call our name and we're going to go to be with you forevermore. Lord, I thank you for your word that's going forth tonight, Lord. God, the encouragement that it gives us as believers that we don't have to know the when. We just need to be looking for the who, and that's Jesus. Lord, I pray that you send us out with comfort, with peace in our hearts, and with a motivation to share this gospel like never before. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Don't forget, we will be having...